Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello everyone, I'm your host James Rogers and this is the History Hit Warfare podcast. It is the season to be jolly. I hope you're all having a happy holidays and an amazing festive period. Last week, just before the Christmas break, I had the pleasure of talking all things history with the fantastic students of St Paul's Church of England Primary School in Leamington Spa. They had an amazing energy, brilliant questions, and so a massive thank you goes out to their assistant head teacher, Peter Hawkins, who is a regular listener to the podcast and who invited me out. It was an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much, and a Merry Christmas to all of you in Leamington Spa. Now, today, we have an episode to match this festive season. We're joined by Robert Rumble, who is here to tell us all about the history of one of Britain's most famous and loved ships, the HMS Belfast. Rob is the lead curator on the Belfast, and as it turns out, some of the ship's fiercest battles and most memorable moments happened around the Christmas period. We talk about the Battle of North Cape that happened on Boxing Day, 1943, all part of the broader Arctic convoys, and we talk about those as well. But we also dive into some stranger stories, like the odd case of Olga the Reindeer. So, I know you're going to love this one. Drop us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And now, here is Rob Rumble on the HMS Belfast. Enjoy! Hi Rob, welcome to the History Hit Warfare podcast. How are you doing today? Yeah, I'm very well, thanks James. Uh, thanks for having me on. Not a problem at all. You're a busy man. I know you've had a busy few days. The world's media attention, as always, on the HMS Belfast. Do you finally get a bit of a break, a holiday soon? <laughs> yes, I, I'm looking forward to a break over Christmas. But um, no, I absolutely love working in the ship and bringing its history to life. Yeah, it's very special. The last big gun warship, or British big gun warship from the Second World War, and, you know, couldn't be located in a more prominent, better spot on the Thames in London. No, it could not. And you know what? There is nothing better than on a sunny day in London, heading down to the pub that's right next to the Belfast, sitting there with a beer, and then looking out towards the ship. And then it's framed perfectly by Tower Bridge. But it can't just be the delights of having a beer next to the Belfast that make it this enduring presence. It has a place in the nation's heart. What do you think it is? You're the lead curator of the HMS Belfast. Tell us, what do you think it is about the Belfast that makes it just so interesting for us? Well, it's representative of Britain's history throughout the mid-20th century. I like to think of the Belfast almost as a 
totem for the role of the British Empire in the world and how Britain's maritime fortunes changed during the 20th century. So she was originally constructed to potentially fight against the large Japanese cruisers, which could have threatened Britain's trade routes in the Pacific. She then found herself in service in European waters with the home fleet and then later on the Arctic convoys during the Second World War. Once the war ended in Europe, she was refitted for her original purpose in the tropical Pacific and was sent to fight the Japanese as originally intended. However, the war ended just before she got there. So she kind of represented, or I'd like to say flew the flag for the British Empire in places such as Hong Kong, Singapore, Australia, in the post-war period. But of course, by this point, the world had completely changed. The various nations of the British Empire were becoming independent. So the Royal Navy needed to find a new purpose in a new world where it had now been eclipsed by the United States Navy and was beginning to enter that period of the Cold War with the communist threat. And then by the 1960s, the Royal Navy really had to work out what purpose they needed for Belfast. Um, she was modernised with all of the latest technology in 1959 to fight what was then a modern nuclear war. But only four years or so later, budget cuts in the Navy, a new government meant that the ship was no longer required and was decommissioned. So really, in a way, I like to think of the ship's history as almost indicative of Britain's history during that 25-year period. And is it true that Belfast was also sent to Korea during the Korean War as well? Yes, she certainly was. And in fact, that was one of the busiest periods of combat history for the Belfast. She was out in Korean waters from June 1950 to September 1952, and mostly involved in shore bombardment operations, you know, patrolling up and down both the East Coast and the West Coast of the Korean Peninsula, supporting United Nations made up mostly of US forces, but also British Commonwealth, other UN countries, and South Korean forces up and down the length of the uh, Korean Peninsula. And uh, in fact, Belfast fired far more ammunition during that 18 months or so than she did during the Second World War, which is more famous for. So yeah, Korean War was one of the most gruelling periods of the ship's history. But still almost ended up as razor blades. Is that right? So close to being on the scrap heap. Once Belfast was taken out of active service in 1963, she found use as an accommodation ship for naval reservists down at Portsmouth. But um, in many ways, the writing was on the wall by the late 60s. The ship was too large, too expensive to maintain and didn't really have a purpose in a modern navy which had, you know, aircraft carriers, flying jets, nuclear-powered submarines. Naval warfare and the politics of the Cold War world had completely changed. So the ship was earmarked for scrapping, and the Royal Navy guys got to work on stripping her of all of any useful fixtures and fittings that could be reused within the Navy. However, around this point, Dr Noble Franklin, who was then director of the Imperial War Museum, was invited down to Portsmouth to ostensibly look for a six-inch gun turret, exactly the same as carried on Belfast, to potentially preserve for the Imperial War Museum, a bit like the two large 15-inch guns we have outside the building in London today. And he was shown one older other cruiser, which was not in good condition at all. Meanwhile, though, across the water, the smart, well-painted, well-maintained Belfast was sitting there looking rather magnificent. And he said, well, 
can we go on board and have a look at that one? To which the Navy said yes. And following a long meeting, which according to the records from the time, included quite a few glasses of pink gin, the um, Imperial War Museum decided that they could do better than a gun turret and proposed the idea of purchasing and preserving the Belfast the entire ship. Wow, that is incredible, isn't it? And I love the idea that that decision was made on the back of gin because it's the only way you could make such an ambitious decision. I tell you what we'll do. We don't need the six-inch gun turret. Let's just take the whole ship and park it on the Thames. It sounds like something you talk about over a really gin-filled night, doesn't it, Rob? <laughs> it's certainly a bold idea. And in many ways, it's uh, credit to both Dr Noble Franklin and Admiral Morgan Giles, who was Belfast's last captain in active commission from 1961 to 1962. By 1970, he was a Minister for Parliament, so had some of that political clout in the House of Commons to get things done. And from what I understand, he was a very determined and persuasive man. So basically, the Royal Navy said, yes, you can have the ship as long as you raise the money to match the scrap value, which was, I believe, about £5 million value in today's money. So not a small amount that the Royal Navy would be losing out on through its scrap value. However, a trust was set up to save the ship. The money was raised. Admiral Morgan Giles, MP, spoke to the right people. And yes, by October 1971, the ship had been preserved was towed out of Portsmouth around the coast of the English Channel up the Thames and was ready to be open to the public in time for Trafalgar Day, October 1971. Amazing. And we're so glad it was. And I can't wait to get back on the Belfast. And we're going to come visit you over the summer and we'll do a full episode on another topic I want to talk about, which is about the HMS Belfast role in D-Day. But today, I really want to talk to you about the Arctic convoys. I want to learn so much more about it, but I know that it was one of the key areas that the Belfast was involved in. So tell us a bit more broadly what the Arctic convoys were. Okay, so the Arctic convoys were a Western Allied effort to provide assistance to the Soviet Union once it was involved in the war against Nazi Germany. So basically Nazi Germany invaded the Soviet Union in June 1941 and very quickly the Soviets were on the back foot, huge defeats as the German armies rolled forward surrounding Soviet formations, uh, you know, millions of Soviet soldiers killed and taken prisoner. And by autumn 1941, there was a serious danger that the Germans were going to be victorious and absolutely smash the Soviets out of the war. So by summer 1941, the Soviet leader, Joseph Stalin, was already in conversation with Winston Churchill, the British Prime Minister. And Churchill, keen for any ally at that point, despite his personal distastes for Stalin and communism, was keen for the British to support the Soviets in any way they could. That was somewhat limited at the time. The British didn't have any land forces available in Europe, were embroiled in fighting against the Germans and the Italians in the Mediterranean. So the best option was to provide war supplies, war material, armaments, trucks, railway locomotives, aircraft, munitions, tanks, everything that the Soviets needed. The Soviets had the manpower, but they were losing their factories and they hadn't quite set up the rest of their industrial capacity yet to 
continue the fight against the Germans. So during those dangerous months of autumn 1941, they needed as much of that material that could be offered to them. So basically the Arctic convoys were a very dangerous convoy route whereby British merchant ships and later in the war, United States ships would sail from the United Kingdom all the way up past Iceland around the um, North Cape, north of Norway, into the Arctic Ocean, and all the way around to the Russian Arctic ports of Mamansk and Archangel. It was an incredibly dangerous journey. The hazards included horrendous weather, Arctic storms, icebergs. Ice would just accumulate on the ships as they sailed through the freezing waters, and the sailors would have to break off the ice by day as much as they could before it refroze again at night. And then, of course, there was the danger of the enemy. By then, the uh, Germans had fully occupied the Norwegian coast and had U-boat bases, aircraft based in Norway, and large surface warships such as the Scharnhorst and the Tirpitz, which were able to sail out and threaten to sink any Arctic convoy and any of the escort ships escorting them. God, it's not the theatre that I would want to be posted in, I tell you that, Rob. So I did my studies up in Hull in the northeast of the UK, and I, I remember sitting and having a drink with some of the trawlermen that would go and head up and do their fishing up in the Arctic, up past Iceland as well. And they would say that those ships would just be filled so quickly with ice, especially if there's rain in the air, if there's surf coming up, it just freezes and freezes. And it's an endless effort just to battle the weather, not alone battling the German Navy at the same time as well. And of course, a lot of this was done in complete darkness. You didn't have the lights on. You had your lights out as you were going through the night trying to evade enemy aircraft trying to evade the U-boats and trying to evade the surface vessels as well. Do we have any accounts of what it was like for the sailors operating during this period? Yes, we certainly do. One of the accounts that I personally find most interesting is John Wilson, who was the son of Winston Churchill's personal doctor, of all people. He was a young man by the time of the Arctic convoys, um, 18 years old or something like that, and was earmarked to do officer training in the Royal Navy. However, he was set to do six months initially as an ordinary seaman, as a sailor, to um, learn the ropes, as it were, learn his seamanship before going to officer training. And he was assigned to HMS Belfast on the Arctic convoys. And the wonderfully account, really vivid accounts that he writes in his letters home to his mother are really special, describing seeing the northern lights, describing the weather, describing the action against the German Navy, whilst at the same time, some of the little home comforts that they had, what it was like to sleep in a hammock, what it was like just to drink cocoa and to keep warm, your sheepskin coat keeping you warm. His job as a um, anti-aircraft gun layer, he basically describes his job was to turn the right dials and knobs at exactly the right time. And once he saw that the guns were firing properly, he knew he'd done his job correctly. And then the camaraderie he had with his messmates, being one of the younger, newer sailors, there was a, a bit of a hierarchy amongst the lower decks. The older, more experienced sailors would sling their hammocks in the more preferable spots. So Wilson, being the youngest, had to find a spot in the corner of the capstan flat, right at the front of the bow of the ship, where he had to sleep over the whirring machinery of the capstan as it operated the anchors. 
And he described a rather a lovely story, considering his family background. He'd come from a relatively well-to-do family, but then found himself working with experienced seamen from the major British maritime cities, um, Liverpudlians, Glaswegians, people who he'd never really met previously in his life prior to the Royal Navy. And there's one funny story where he describes how on one of his first nights on board, he tried to get changed before sleep into his silk pyjamas, which caused much hilarity amongst his messmates um, who were used to just sleeping in their hammocks, either in their underwear or in their naval blues. And from then onwards, he acquired the nickname the Duke, which (laughs) he found rather amusing. But it was all very good natured. You know, they were all living, working together, facing the same hardships. And Wilson describes how welcoming his new messmates made him and how they took him under their wing and looked after him. Although I'm not sure you want to face battle stations in your silk pyjamas, but they really were doing doing such a vital job to relieve the worst of those shortages for the Soviet Union during those events of like the siege of Leningrad in 1941, just getting that material across just to bide Stalin time as he was moving those factories across Russia, reforming them, regrouping them and rebuilding the entirety of the Soviet Red Army, really. Tudor men like their women to look like? They should have broad shoulders, fleshy arms, fleshy legs and broad hips. What did 17th century Londoners think of coffee? A syrup of soot and the essence of old shoes. And what did executioners wear? A lot of these guys, they were clothes horses because it's a big public spectacle. All the eyes are on you. I'm Professor Susanna Lipscomb, and in my podcast, Not Just the Tudors, we talk about everything from monasteries to the Medici, sex to spying, wardrobes to witch trials. Not, in other words, just the Tudors, but most definitely also the Tudors. Subscribe from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. 
Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. But it wasn't in any way plain sailing out there, was it? Because you've mentioned some of the ships they face. You've mentioned the Scharnhorst. And there was a major battle around this time, actually, around the festive period. And this was the Battle of North Cape on Boxing Day 1943. So tell us a little about how the Belfast was involved in this battle. So Belfast played a key role in the engagements known as the Battle of the North Cape. At that point, Belfast was the flagship of the 10th Cruiser Squadron, made up of Belfast and HMS Sheffield and HMS Norfolk. And as a flagship, that meant that she carried an admiral, Admiral uh, Robert Burnett in this case, who commanded the cruiser group. And basically, the cruiser squadron was designed to sail about 50 miles or so ahead of a large Arctic convoy, clearing any smaller German ships, destroyers, U-boats out of the way. Ah, they are the spearhead. Exactly. So they weren't equipped with depth charges or anything like that to actually sink the U-boats. That was done by the smaller corvettes and destroyers, which were much closer to the convoys. But they, exactly as you said, they were the spearhead to clear the way. Now, by Christmas 1943, the two major German Navy weapons which threatened the Arctic convoys were the battleships Tirpitz and Scharnhorst. Now, at that point, Tirpitz had been bomb damaged, so was currently out of action. But the Scharnhorst, armed with her nine 11-inch guns, was a formidable warship designed to sail very fast, you know, over 30 knots, which is about 35 to 40 miles per hour, and seriously well-armed with heavy guns and state-of-the-art radar. So the Royal Navy were keen to do anything to knock the Scharnhorst out of the war. And when they learnt that Scharnhorst was based up at Alpenfjord in Norway, they decided to set a trap for her. They sent Arctic Convoy JW-55B from Britain to Russia with the intention of drawing out the Scharnhorst into a trap. The Belfast, along with her fellow cruisers, would engage the Scharnhorst from the northeast. Meanwhile, Admiral Fraser, on board the British battleship the Duke of York, would be sailing up with another battle group from the southwest in order to trap the Scharnhorst in a pincer move and ultimately destroy the ship. Well, take us through the battle. How did this turn out, Rob? Well, it's worth remembering, you know, we're talking December in the Arctic. So pitch black, nigh on 24 hours of darkness. So the ships were relying upon their radar systems to detect each other and also to direct any of their gunfire. So early on the morning of the 26th of December, Belfast and the 10th Cruiser Squadron sighted the Scharnhorst on radar and engaged at long-range gunfire. Now, at this point, Admiral Burnett was faced with making an important decision. He had a hunch that the Scharnhorst was trying to escape north, drawing the cruisers onto her with the intention of destroying the cruisers and then returning south to run for Altenfjord. So he proposed that Belfast disengage 
and then lie in wait for the Scharnhorst as she returned south. And this caused a little bit of controversy because there was a danger that the Royal Navy would completely lose the Scharnhorst and the chance of sinking her would be lost. But Admiral Burnett and Captain Frederick Parham, the captain of the Belfast, were convinced that they were doing the right thing. And lo and behold, they were correct. Later on, the Scharnhorst was sighted again, sailing south, and the cruisers were able to engage her. But Scharnhorst was a formidable enemy. First of all, the Norfolk was hit. One of its 8-inch gun turrets completely destroyed with the deaths of all the crew working in the uh, turret and shell room, 48 men in total. And this knocked the Norfolk out of the battle. Belfast's fellow cruiser, the Sheffield, had um, also developed engine trouble and had slowed considerably. So she was no use in the battle either. She'd have been a sitting duck. So the Sheffield withdrew. So for a period, Belfast was engaged alone against the Scharnhorst, against a much stronger target. But actually, things were in the Belfast's favour by this point. The cruisers had, by this point, made a direct hit on one of the Scharnhorst's main radar towers. So essentially, Scharnhorst was now firing its massive 11-inch guns, almost completely blind. Pitch black, although they were firing star shells, which are like giant fireworks lighting up the target area, the Scharnhorst kept missing the Belfast. And in fact, John Wilson, who witnessed the battle from his anti-aircraft gun direct station, described the whoosh of the 11-inch shells flying over the Belfast and smashing into the sea behind. But as I mentioned, the Scharnhorst was a wounded animal now. And once Admiral Fraser and the Duke of York managed to get into range and join the battle, the Scharnhorst was doomed. There was nothing that it could do against the combination of the Duke of York's 14-inch guns, the Belfast, other cruisers and destroyers that had now joined the battle. And within hours, the Scharnhorst was a burning wreck. Wow. I mean, the Scharnhorst was once known as the lucky Scharnhorst, wasn't it? And its luck had run out that day. Do we know what kind of psychological blow this had on the German people as well, or on Hitler and the military, because this was a, a very famous ship, wasn't it? Hitler was absolutely um, furious that the Scharnhorst had been lost. And in fact, once the German surface fleet was no longer really a major threat to the Royal Navy, he almost basically disbanded it. The rest of the German surface ships were kept in ports, used in coastal support operations in the Baltic against the Soviets, but were no longer really in a position to engage the Royal Navy in the Arctic, the Atlantic or the North Sea. The one arm of service the German Navy still did have, though, was their U-boats, and all of the resources were given to the German U-boat arm from that point onwards. But really, by spring 1944, the German Navy had lost the war. The Royal Navy had a critical mass of new ships, new technology, and dominated the seas. And the great tragedy here, I suppose, is that, as often the case in naval warfare, the key is to take out the ship. It's not necessarily about killing all those on board. It's to render that piece of wartime machinery useless for your enemy. But, um, of course, in this case, there were large amounts of losses for the German Navy, weren't there? Yeah, the Battle of the North Cape resulted in a, an enormous loss of life for the German Navy. Of the Scharnhorst's 2,000 or so crewmen, 
only about 30 survived and were rescued out of the water by the ships of the Royal Navy. The sailors on the Belfast at the time were sympathetic to the plight of the enemy sailors. They were fellow maritime professionals and well it could be them exactly and the Belfast crew knew that it was a case of kill or be killed in such engagements and to their ultimate relief and satisfaction did their utmost to be on the winning side in such an engagement no absolutely and the courage with which these sailors served it's astonishing to think that it was only so recently that we had that military campaign medal brought in the arctic star in 2012 to recognise British Commonwealth forces who served on the Arctic convoys north of the Arctic Circle during the Second World War. And that's a process that still continues on today with people being awarded the Arctic Star as they're able to submit their papers to show they served in that part of the world. But serving in that part of the world also came with other intriguing connections and stumbling across, I believe there's a story about Olga the Reindeer. Oh, gosh. Seeing as it's the Christmas period, Rob, tell me about Olga the Reindeer. So Olga the Reindeer was a Christmas present in 1943 provided by the Soviet Navy Northern Fleet to Admiral Burnett of the uh, 10th Cruiser Squadron as a, you know, act of goodwill from Britain's Soviet allies for their assistance during the Arctic convoys. And The intention had been to safely transport Olga, as the Belfast sailors had christened her, safely back to Portsmouth, where I believe she would have found a home in the Royal Navy's little zoo that they kept there of various animals their ships had picked up around the world. So they found a place to keep Olga on board the ship. She was um, tied up in one of the now unused Walrus seaplane hangars and the sailors uh, took turns in keeping her fed and looked after. But sadly for Olga the Reindeer, she turned out to be Belfast's only inadvertent casualty of the Battle of the North Cape. As the Belfast's uh, six-inch guns opened their broadsides, the entire ship shook with the thud of the gunfire, and um, this absolutely terrified Olga the Reindeer. And sadly, she was so frightened that she was in danger of causing herself serious injury as she tried to escape from the walrus hangar. So following some consideration amongst the ship's cooks and butchers, they decided, sadly, that it was best to put Olga out of her fear and out of her misery. So Bernard Thompson, one of the officer's cooks, it was his duty to dispatch Olga the reindeer. And she was then prepared as an impromptu belated Christmas Day feast for the crew. So for Christmas 1943, many of the Belfast sailors enjoyed the taste of venison for the first time. Wow. Well, there you go. Here's me thinking we were going to get a nice story about Olga the reindeer living a long and happy life at Christmas time. But hey, at least the sailors got some venison. I suppose someone had a Merry Christmas. Yes, for many of the um, the sailors unused to the luxury of venison at Christmas, it was certainly a memorable feast for the crew. Absolutely. Well, there's so many amazing stories tied up inside the Belfast and its remarkable history. Tell us, are you open into the new year? When can we come and visit? Do you have new exhibitions we can come and see? What is going on at HMS Belfast in 2022?
The Belfast is open to the public Wednesdays to Sundays during term time and seven days a week during school holidays. We're open from 10 o'clock in the morning and there's so much for visitors to come and see on board. We recently opened some new displays in the ship, you know, updating some of the stories of the ship's history. So visitors can now experience cooking up a feast for the ship's crew in the galley. They can discover the story of the ship's surgeon lieutenant, Tony Rowan, during the Korean War in the sick bay where he carried out life-saving operations. They can head down below decks to the lower steering position and try their hand at steering Belfast to its bombardment position on D-Day. And then we've got the newly redisplayed mess decks where the Belfast's crew ate, slept and lived essentially where they can experience the story of the Arctic convoys, the colds, the danger, the, the ice and the dark conditions. And then as a contrast, they can find out how the crew lived in Belfast during the immediate post-war period, when Belfast was in the uh, tropical climate of the Pacific, um, flying the flag for the British Empire again. So there's so much to see and to do, which um, must say I'm biased, but... I could certainly spend all day on the Belfast exploring the ship, enjoying climbing up and down the ladders, exploring all the decks and making sure to have my selfie moments sitting up in the captain's chair on the main bridge. I couldn't agree more. I have done it. I did it as a child, as an adult, and I'm going to do it again, Rob. And I can't wait to see you over the summer. Thank you so much for your time, Rob. No, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you and thanks very much for having me. If you're enjoying this podcast and you're looking for more fascinating warfare content, then go and subscribe to our Warfare Wednesdays newsletter. Just follow the link in the show notes to find out more. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. And before you go, remember, as a warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully uninterrupted ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War, and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland. 
further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.